With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On January 1st, 1985, when most people in Pensacola, Florida, were settling down after ringing in the new year, one family was dealing with an emergency. This emergency had nothing to do with evil, and nobody would be labeled a monster over it. No, they were taking their dog to an all-night vet at about 3 o'clock in the morning. As they pulled out of their driveway, their daughter pointed to the side of the road and announced that there was a mannequin on the curb. Her parents knew it's never a mannequin, so they pulled back up to the house and went inside to call the authorities. It was there that the police found the body of 23-year-old Tanya McKinley. She had been murdered and dumped on the side of the road, and it would take more than three decades to catch her killer. This is Monsters. Tanya McKinley was born on January 25, 1961, and grew up in Milton, Florida, not far from Pensacola. She had a sister named Renee. People say she was an outgoing kid who loved to be the center of attention. Tanya dropped out of high school when she was 17 and moved to Pensacola with her cousin, Vanita Biasco. She took classes to become a medical transcriptionist and started dating a man named Tim Davidson. People say the relationship wasn't great, but they eventually had a child together. After their son, Tim Jr., was born in 1983, Tanya dedicated her life to her son, but she didn't feel the same type of love for his father. The day after Christmas in 1984, Tanya left Tim Sr. and moved in with her cousin and her husband. Unfortunately, the desire to separate was not mutual. Tim wanted to stay together, and he was said to have a habit of following Tanya to keep an eye on her. Tanya stayed busy working, going to school, and raising her son as a single parent. There wasn't a lot of time to have fun, but on New Year's Eve of 1985, Tanya, her cousin Vanita, and Vanita's husband Larry made plans for childcare and went out to a local bar called Daryl's. They stayed until after midnight, but for the holiday, the daycare was only staying open until 1 a.m. Tanya didn't want to end her night of fun, and so Vanita offered to pick up both kids and let Tanya stay at the bar a little longer. Tanya assured her cousin that she had a bunch of friends at the bar and could easily find a ride home. That would be the last time Vanita ever saw Tanya alive. The next morning, when Larry and Vanita woke up, they realized that Tanya had never made it home. 
They didn't have to wonder where she was for long because Larry's mother arrived at their house and let them know that Tanya's body had been discovered. The police had been alerted to the body at about 3 a.m. that morning. When the medical examiner was able to perform an autopsy, he ran her fingerprints and found a match in the system. Tanya had been arrested for drug possession in 1981. Authorities were able to notify the family of the shocking news in the early morning hours of January 1st. It was clear from the scene that the murder had not occurred there. There was no sign of a struggle, so investigators believed it was just a dump site. The medical examiner determined that Tanya had been strangled and a rape kit revealed the presence of semen and foreign pubic hairs. There was a towel on the ground next to the body, and on that were more pubic hairs and also black hair that was later determined to be from an animal. Of course, in any murder, a romantic partner or ex-romantic partner is commonly to blame, so investigators immediately started looking into Tim Davidson. When they found out about his somewhat controlling behavior during the time he and Tanya were together, it definitely made them that much more interested in him, and Tanya's family told them that he was the only person they knew who would want to hurt her. Vanita told the investigators that in the days before her murder, their arguments escalated to the point that Tim actually bumped his truck into Tanya. The bump knocked her over, and she wasn't seriously injured, but it displayed a level of violence that could very well lead to murder. When detectives questioned Tim, they felt his behavior was odd, and he kept trying to point them to other people he said were responsible. However, when investigators compared his hair to the hairs found at the scene, they were not a match, and then he passed a polygraph. On top of that, he said he was at a party at the time of the murder, and investigators ended up finding a video someone had made of the party that proved he could not have murdered Tanya. Their number one suspect was cleared and investigators were back to square one. They moved on to question the last people who had seen her at the bar on New Year's Eve, particularly the bartender, a man named Kurt Lisk. Kurt Lisk was the bartender of Daryl's and Tanya had told her friends that she had been seeing him casually. It seemed to Vanita that she was excited to see him that evening. Since he was the last person to see Tanya, he was questioned, but he seemed like he didn't want to talk about her and he claimed they had never had a relationship. It definitely piqued the interest of investigators, but he had an alibi which a number of people were able to corroborate. He claimed to have gone home with two women and was with them the rest of the evening. They both confirmed that, adding that he had left once very briefly to get a bottle of wine. They said that only took him about 15 minutes, which wouldn't have been enough time to murder Tanya, dump her body, and then get back to the house. Investigators still had a bad feeling about Kurt, so they re-interviewed the women he was with that night, and that's when the story changed. They told the investigators that he had actually been gone for about two hours between 2 and 4 a.m., and that he had asked them to lie so that he wouldn't be a suspect. When they talked to Kurt's roommate, he told them that Kurt had definitely been seeing Tanya. Based on those lies, the authorities were sure they had found the murderer, as the new time window meant Kurt was unaccounted for for the same time Tanya was killed. Kurt was questioned again, and he couldn't explain where he was during those two hours, but he was adamant that he didn't kill Tanya. In 1985, the crime lab couldn't pull a DNA profile from semen, but they could get a blood type, which they did for the semen found on Tanya's body. In an effort to put the final nail in Kurt's coffin, investigators got a blood sample from him, but to their surprise, the blood types didn't match. 
It's speculated that Kurt had lied in order to hide his additional relationships from his longtime girlfriend. Kurt was then cleared as a suspect and the investigation went cold. Tim Jr. went on to live with his father and as the decades went on, the idea that her killer would be caught continued to dwindle. Of course, as time went on, scientific advances in forensics made it possible to pull a DNA profile from the evidence collected at the scene. That profile was put into CODIS, the combined DNA index system, but there were no matches. If whoever had murdered Tanya had not committed a crime that justified having their DNA profile entered into the system, there would be no way to match it to anybody. Investigators were forced to continue waiting. It wasn't until 2015, 30 years after Tanya's murder, that investigators were able to put the DNA profile into the familial search system within CODIS. That meant that, instead of searching for a direct match to the DNA profile, they were looking for anyone who had a DNA profile indicating they might be a family member of the suspect. It only took a few months for investigators to get a hit on a man named Donald Farmer. But after getting DNA samples from his family, none of them matched. Unfortunately, the familial match was not accurate and Tanya's murderer was not related to the Farmer family. After a few more years, investigators were opened up to the idea of genetic genealogy being able to help them track down the murderer. In 2020, using a site like GEDmatch, they got back thousands of results of people who could be distant relatives of the killer. From there, they traced those people's family trees and filled in the blanks until they were able to narrow down their search to a man named Daniel Wells. Daniel was a 57-year-old father who was living in Pensacola. Though he had lived in Missouri for a period of time, he had lived in Pensacola at the time of the murders, only a few blocks away from where the body was found. It was also revealed that he had been arrested multiple times in Missouri for exposing his sexual organs. Realizing that Daniel was likely the murderer, they put him under surveillance and eventually he made the mistake of tossing a cigarette butt out his truck window while he was driving to work. He was quickly collected and the DNA profile was a match to the semen left on Tanya's body. After tracking down people that knew Daniel back in 1985, it was also discovered that his roommate at the time had a black dog something that would explain the black animal hair that was on the towel found next to Tanya's body. Daniel was pulled over as he was leaving work one day and taken to the police station for questioning. When the interrogation starts, they don't tell him right away why he's there and they don't mention Tanya, but he doesn't seem to question why he's there. Generally, if an innocent person gets pulled into the police station and interrogated, they're pretty concerned about exactly why they're being questioned. Daniel doesn't seem concerned about that at all. Before they get into the murder, they talk to Daniel about his previous arrests. From our point of view, what you did is you pulled up, you saw a lady, probably pretty, mm -hmm. right? Targeted her. I've been, you, I've been drinking. You've been sure. drinking, right? So that's, the only, that's the only time I ever did that. And then, so you, you said, you asked for direction to lure her over to your truck, right? And then you committed the act of masturbating in front of her. Why would you do that? I understand you were drinking, but I, I mean, is I it, don't know. is it out of frustration? Did you, do you think that seeing her reaction or, or her embarrassment or something no. like that was something that you were looking no, for? No, I just think it was just for my own gratification. Just, I don't, I don't know. It's just, uh, do you think it helped you 
sexually? It helped arouse you that you were going to do this? Just expose myself. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. So there was a sexual aspect to doing it. It wasn't external. It wasn't like you were trying to hurt her. No. It was for yourself to help you with uh, like arousal and how you felt sexually about it. I would say that's, yeah. Okay. The reason he did it is because he can't control himself sexually around women. At no point in my life, no matter how drunk I was, have I ever had the desire to whip out my junk and show it to anyone. I've been married for almost 20 years and I've never had that desire with my wife. I mean, outside of the bedroom, like we're in the kitchen and I'm like, zip, check it out. And that's because I have self-control over my actions, even when I'm sexually aroused. Daniel does not, and that's the type of person who gets frustrated when they don't get what they want sexually and explode with rage. He talks about being from a broken home and having four older sisters. He said his parents divorced when he was 11 years old and he was raised by just his father. His youngest sister went to boarding school and his other sisters were out of the house, so his mother moved away by herself, which could be the root of Daniel's resentment of women. He claims to have no issues with his mother leaving, but there can still be issues that people don't consciously recognize. Of course, once they brought up Tanya, he claimed to have no idea who she was. So that young lady I just showed you a picture of. Right. New Year's Eve, 1984, going 1985. January 1st, early morning, 1985. Okay. It's found dead on the side of a road. And I have the evidence that you're the one that's there. Oh. I have irrefutable evidence that you're there. I'm not, I am not doing all this right. on a guess. I'm I not doing all this. I don't know. On, on a hunch. Dan. Yeah. I'm telling you, you're there. I wasn't there. He also still seemed way too calm for someone who was just told that his DNA was found on a dead body. He wasn't surprised that his DNA was on her body because he knew he left it there. But like most suspects, he continued to deny he even knew her. I don't Do you understand. understand. I mean, I would never, I didn't, have never hurt anybody in my life. That's what's, I mean, it, I, I've had one night stands and stuff before, but it's, it's like. Have you had a one night stand with her before? No, I don't know her. I'm telling you, I, do, I cannot recognize her. I don't know the name. Dan, it's like you went back to, to school days. The I don't only know reason you're not telling us that you know who she is is because you're afraid that somehow we'll find out that you're responsible for her death. We already know that you are. The interrogation goes down the typical path of the detectives explaining the evidence to Daniel and him denying to have known Tanya. Then his story shifts a little bit. Eventually, he admitted that he might have had a one-night stand with her, but he doesn't remember her in any way. The detectives told him that that story was unlikely because her murder was all over the news the next day. He lived right down the street, so he would have seen the story all over the news of the woman he had just had sex with having been murdered right near his house and had completely forgotten about it. When the detective put it that way, he went back to saying that he didn't think he had sex with anybody that night. After some more coaxing from the investigators, he finally admitted to being with Tanya. I was with her and stuff, but I didn't give her a ride home. And there was a group of us. 
because I guess she lived over in uh, Santa Rosa County or something. But um, Bobby Hicks and uh, a guy named Ralph James, they were with me. But there was a group of people that I went to school with that were that were there, and uh, we did have sex in the parking lot. And other than that, well, no, actually, it was at the house, I guess, too. Yeah, because that's where that's where um, uh, John Pendergast lived. He claimed he had been out with a group of friends and he had sex with Tanya at his friend's house, but then she left with the other people he had been with. Homicide investigators know exactly what's going on and they explain to Daniel that they know that he's minimizing his involvement in what happened to Tanya. After about 45 minutes, the detectives were finally able to get a confession from Daniel. So just started at the well, beginning. Okay. Well, she just, I remember that she, her friends had left her and she wanted a ride home and you know, but we went by my but went by my house and we had a few drinks and stuff and it just it just escalated from 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 that she uh, um I just I think I hit her in the head and it, it knocked her out. And it, it, it was a traumatic blow. And it killed her. What happened that made it get out of control? Oh, I, I think uh, we just got in kind of an argument over something. I can't remember what it was. Daniel claimed that he had already had consensual sex with Tanya, and then she wanted to leave, but he didn't want her to. It seemed that Daniel was interested in another round of sex and became enraged that Tanya wanted to leave. He said that Tanya slapped him, so he grabbed a cutting board and hit her in the head with it. Like mentioned before, Daniel is a person who can't control himself with women when he's not getting what he wants sexually. So you hit her. You said it was a fatal blow. She was unconscious at least. Right. So then you had sex with her a second time while she well, was unconscious. Well, not really sex. But I, I didn't. No. You tried. We, we had sex. I did. Then it was like I'm, I was couldn't believe what had happened, and I couldn't get her to respond. So you stopped. I didn't know what you're doing. So what'd you do then? Oh, I think I just took her down the road. You think you I did? took her down the road and what and my in my vehicle and which vehicle I don't know what I was driving then I think it was my Ford I think it was my truck he claimed that he checked her pulse and she was dead so he put her in his truck and dumped her on the side of the road but the detectives knew that wasn't entirely true again he's trying to minimize what he did by making it sound at least a little bit like an accident when the detectives asked him how he really killed her, he admitted that he strangled her with his bare hands. Daniel Wells was charged with first-degree murder and first-degree sexual battery, but unfortunately, he would never be brought to justice. 
15 days after his arrest, he was found dead in his cell. He had hanged himself in order to escape living the rest of his life in prison. Obviously, Tanya's family feels cheated out of justice, but they're relieved that her killer was identified and can no longer hurt anyone else. Daniel Wells was a monster who would have happily gone to his grave without anyone ever knowing what he had done in 1985. He was so determined to not be punished for his actions that he took a second life after he was caught. His own. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.